journey, I want to hear from those who have taken this path before me. This podcast focuses on them and listening to their stories uninterrupted. My name is Hiba Masood, and I invite you to reflect on the trajectories of their lives and the guidance and blessings provided by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala along that journey. Imam Dawood Walid grew up south of the Mason-Dixon line in Chesterfield County, Virginia. It was commonplace to see Confederate flags and signs like the South will rise again. Like others of his generation, listening to hip-hop, watching Spike Lee's X, and the protests following the shootings of Rodney King and Amadou Diallo played a huge role. They awakened in him not only an interest in social justice, but also Islam. He wanted to learn classical Arabic to better understand the Quran. At that time, the best place in the U.S. to learn Arabic was in Detroit, Michigan, and so he moved to the Midwest. His spiritual journey would take him from learning in Detroit to eventually traveling to Ghana, Mali, and Senegal. Today, Dawood Walid heads Care, Michigan. He has authored four books, two titled Centering Black Narratives, a third titled Toward Sacred Activism, and a fourth coming out this February, inshallah, titled Blackness in Islam. In this episode, he sheds light on the importance of learning black Muslim history and the relationship of the Sawaf with sacred activism and anti-racism work within our communities. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim Alhamdulillah wa sallallahu ala sayyidina wa nabiyyina wa habibina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. So my uh, upbringing was uh, first I was born in the city of Detroit and uh, after my uh, parents split up when I was quite young I made a, a pit stop for a little while going to school in New York and then uh, heading south of the Mason-Dixon line down to the Tidewater area of Virginia and then uh, Central Virginia which I went to um, middle school and high school in, in Chesterfield County, Virginia. <clears throat> I was in an, an environment that was uh, predominantly white in a uh, semi-rural area. And um, in my uh, high school, it probably was about 90% uh, white American. And I remember that uh, in the high school at the time, there was probably uh, maybe eight Muslims in a school with a student body population of, let's say, about 3,000 people. As a youth, um, I experienced uh, a lot of uh, overt racism and um, in the school system that I was at and from uh, some of the the uh, young people that I was around, especially when I got to high school, it got uh, very more um, overt. Uh, there were some uh, racial fights in the school that I went to. 
And uh, it was commonplace at that time in, in Chesterfield, Virginia of neighbors or people in the area that would have Confederate flags flying from their homes. Uh, the South will rise again, um, bumper stickers on their cars. Uh, even people would come to school with uh, Leonard Skinner t-shirts with Confederate flags. So it, it wasn't a very uh, welcoming place. And really uh, the times that I would feel more comfortable in my own skin was on like times like spring break and summer break when uh, I would go to my my dad's and be with my uh, my father's family in in Detroit where I could be around uh, people who uh, who looked like me and and people who had a different type of of a mindset uh, than the uh, the framework that I was operating in uh, growing up as a as a youth in in Virginia. I can't even imagine growing up around all those Confederate flags. But um, what are some of the things you saw that sparked the passion for social justice activism in Islam? Well, for me, it was when I was a teenager, and there was a couple of things that came together at this time in the uh, in the 90s. Um, so one of those was uh, in the early 90s, it was the convergence of uh, conscious hip hop music mm -hmm. and with the um, with the release of the movie X uh, that Spike Lee put out about the life of Malcolm X, Rahimullah Ta'ala, and those things that kind of came together at that time really uh, sparked my interest, um, not only in issues of racial justice, but uh, Islam in general. Um, I, I, I've said this many times that, and it's no disrespect to the to the the preachers or the imams of that time, but uh, hip hop culture and rap music was more of my dawa towards uh, Malcolm and then learning about the Prophet Muhammad than any sort of writings or preaching, you know, that I heard about uh, the Dean at that time. And also as a teenager, uh, this was a time when, um, when the first police brutality case was caught on camera that the whole nation saw, and that was uh, the brutal beating of Rodney King in uh, in Southern California by the, by the LAPD. And so that happened when I was a teenager. And uh, that was a, um, a pivotal moment uh, in my life as far as shaping my worldview. And then uh, we fast forward, uh, a number of years later, then I also remember as a as a youth, uh, or we can say as a a, 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 a young man, um, the uh, brutal shooting of Ahmadu Jallo, or sometimes it's pronounced uh, Diallo. It's really Jallo in, in the Fulani language, where uh, the NYPD uh, shot at that Muslim brother who was innocent. He's from West Africa, from Guinea. I think they uh, shot him like over 30 times and killed him. And I remember Imam Siraj uh, Wahaj Hafidhullah uh, Ta'ala was the one that did the, the janaza. But that was a very, um, uh, it was just a very 
pivotal moment in, in my development, um, not only because he was uh, black like me, but also uh, a Muslim uh, like myself. What was it like for Muslims at that time, um, especially black Muslims at that time? Was there like the same level of anger that a lot of Muslims have now with Black Lives Matter? Or was it, you know, um, kind of, it was, was it a different time? Well, at that particular time, there were uh, street mobilizations and protests. Uh, what's been going on um, in recent years uh, with BLM is nothing uh, new. It's maybe newer for the younger generation, but this is a continuum of what's been going on. But um, at that particular time, really, uh, it was only Muslims who were Black who were really uh thinking about and talking about these issues of police brutality and police accountability um the the discourse and the discussion amongst uh muslims who are non-black about some of these things is really a very uh new phenomenon i mean it's something that's come about maybe the willingness to talk about these things in the broader muslim community probably only in the last five or six years uh with the um uh, after the the, the brutal uh, murder of, of Mike Brown in Ferguson, but um, it, it there was really no discussion in the broader Muslim community outside of uh, African American Muslims about the issue of um, police brutality and um, and also the issue of, of of mass incarceration that began to rise at that time uh, under. Um, a Democrat president, uh, Bill Clinton, right? So um, that's how it was back then. You know, and I'm glad to see that there's more consciousness and more discussion uh, for Muslims in, in particular who are uh, South Asian and, and, and Arab Americans uh, in recent years, because really there was um, ignoring uh, benign neglect at the least. And in some cases, uh, I remember hearing particular rhetoric about, you know, um, we shouldn't be concerned about those matters as, as black people or black issues because that's nationalism or what some would call Komia or Asabia, you know, so it, it wasn't considered a Muslim enough issue. The, the so-called real Muslim issues were uh, Palestine, uh, uh, occupation, Kashmir occupation, um, and 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 and, and also uh, Bosnia, you know, uh, at that time. But it it was nothing uh, relating to the, the the suffering of of black people, uh, including Muslims who were black uh, in America. Yeah, that's kind of horrifying to hear. <laughs> but uh, we'll definitely talk that, about that later as we talk about uh, towards sacred activism. But. Um... I just want to draw on something you said a little earlier, um, but what was it about hip hop and hip hop culture at that time that you said like it was like giving dawah to you? Like what stuck, what drew you to it? Well, hip hop culture at that time was more balanced, meaning that there was a street side or a raunchy side, but there was a conscious side that was talking about, um, you know, uh, black is beautiful. You can be your natural self. Um, there was the the Pan African vibe, 
but also there were um, a lot of hints of Islam in a lot of those uh, seminal days of the of the early 90s, or what many people would call the golden age, uh, due to people being involved in proto-Islamic movements or actually uh, Muslims who would uh, embrace the Sunnah. So it was uh, common in, in some of the, the more popular rappers that they would uh, mention the word uh, Allah, the name Allah, or mention the Quran, um, sample uh, Malcolm X in their rap songs, um, mention uh, Mecca. I remember uh, one um, rap duo called uh, Pete Rock and CL Smooth, and the title of their of their CD was Mecca and the Soul Brother. You know, um, I remember one song where the rapper said, uh, Allah made you beautiful and youthful, right? So uh, it was, this was obviously prior to, to 9-11, but in, in urban areas and in uh, the hip hop scene, <clears throat> being Muslim uh, wasn't uh, a detriment. As a matter of fact, it was, it was seen as being uh, cool and, and and, uh, and an authentic expression of blackness, uh, unlike um, the the post 9-11 reality that we're in now 20 years after 9-11, it's not as, um, it's not as comfortable um, being uh, Muslim uh, now as it was back then. You talked about kind of having this awakening as a, as a teenager. When did you decide to study Islam on a more deeper level and what was that process like for you? How did you just uh, choose where to study, choose your teachers? Um, so one thing that I I realized as a as a young person and also um, you know reading the Bible and the history of Christianity and reading also the Babylonian Talmud and for and for background, um, you know only. Half of my family is Muslim and half is Christian. So when my parents uh, divorced uh, and I was young, I basically uh, was around uh, a predominant Christian influence growing up. So I didn't know anything about uh, Islam really uh, beyond not eating pork, and you know Ramadan, uh, Ramadan fast, and that uh, Hajj was a was a requirement um, for Mukallif for you know a, uh, a post pubescent uh, male or female. So beyond that, I didn't know <clears throat> much about anything about about Islam. Uh, so as I began to be awakened about uh, through reading the biography of Malcolm X, the conscious hip hop movement, and then reading a, a book about the early history of Islam and our beloved prophet, alayhi afalusalatu wasalam. I wanted to know uh, what God was saying in his word. And I realized that um, unlike the people of the book and the books that came before, that who they didn't have their books in their pure form that we had the quran in the pure form but the quran is only in arabic so 
I wanted to study Arabic because I wanted to read God's word myself instead of reading what uh, Abdullah Yusuf Ali, uh, uh, may Allah have mercy on, on Yusuf Ali, but um, that was a predominant translation that everyone was using, or Pikthal, which was a very um, old English type of translation, very awkward. Uh, I wanted to read what Allah was, was uh, speaking to me uh, directly. So that was my motivation of wanting to uh, study the, uh, the Arabic language. And, um, you know, I got in contact with, uh, with, with teachers. And uh, one, of the, one of the reasons, by the way, that I uh, left Virginia and came to Detroit, because at that time in, in, uh, in America, in the, in the late 90s, it was known or understood that the best place to learn the Arabic language was in Metro Detroit. And not just because uh, it's, a, it's a large concentration of, of Arabs in, in, in North America per capita, which is in Metro Detroit and uh, for Detroit, Hamtramck, Dearborn in, in those areas. But <clears throat> also that there were uh, teachers here. And at the time there was something that was started called the American Islamic University. It's no longer um in existence is defunct now but there are people who came here and learned arabic and studied the quran uh before going overseas so like um sheikh suhaib web uh hafidhullah ta'ala um came here in 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 metro detroit and he was uh studying here right so i knew that there were teachers here that could teach uh the, the language and i had heard about that um, I then, you know, later um, went to uh, to West Africa, and you know, I sat with with Mashaikh, uh over there in, in West Africa, and uh, benefited from scholars and uh, read uh, a number of texts. But you know that that really uh, foundation of my uh, Muslim identity and uh, the beginning of learning Arabic grammar and morphology and actually sitting with teachers the the old-fashioned way. Um, and, and, and I have studied some Islamic studies in secular schools uh, in secular in a secular college, you know for um, for about you know four semesters of classes. but I mean uh, traditional learning uh, that was sitting with a teacher and, uh, you know, opening up books and 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 doing uh doing readings the the old-fashioned way. So um, that's really how it started for me. And uh, I still consider myself uh, a student, though I'm in my late forties. Uh, uh, I still consider myself a student. My my um, my sittings with one of my teachers has been interrupted because of COVID nineteen, but. Uh, even though I've gotten Imam, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm known as Imam Dawood, and I've served as an Imam at a couple of different Islamic centers uh, before, but, um, you know, for <clears throat> for at least a decade, I never stopped sitting with uh, a teacher and, and reading uh, texts. So uh, my, uh, my murabbi, my spiritual mentor, uh, Sheikh Ali Suleiman Ali Hafidhullah Ta'ala, who lives in Metro Detroit. He's originally from uh, Ghana. But for 
uh, about a decade, I would meet with him at least once a week, uh, except uh, if he was traveling abroad or if I was traveling. And we uh, would sit and uh, and read through texts. So I've I've never stopped being um, a student. I can I still consider myself a Talib al uh student of knowledge. And um, I'm not saying uh, that this out of uh, humility, but uh, though I'm called Imam Daoud and I've served uh, in that capacity and um, you know, I give khutbah every Friday. I've I've written books and things, but I've never uh, felt comfortable uh, with that with that title. Uh, I don't consider myself an in, in alim, and uh, I didn't start my endeavors of studying with the with the intention of being known as imam or or, or sheikh. It was, um, you know, to me to 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 learn my 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 dean better and to. Uh, transmit it to 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 my family. You know that's been my primary my, my primary um, uh, objective. Can you talk about some of the teachers that had the most influence and impact on you, and and what you learned from them? I mean, especially um, you know sitting with someone for over a decade, week to week. Um, you know what what do you kind of gain from just being able to sit with with a mentor like that? Well, I would, well, besides Sheikh Ali, and there's one person I will mention, actually, uh, Allah, uh, he passed away about three years ago, and is not someone from overseas, but actually right here in Detroit was uh, Imam uh, Salim Abdurrahman, uh, may Allah have mercy on his soul. Uh, Imam, uh, Imam Salim was a a brother who actually embraced uh, the Nation of Islam ideology in the 60s. And uh, then in 1975, he left that ideology when Imam Warthad Din uh, Muhammad rahmatullahi uh, trans started to transition the people out of the Nation of Islam uh, to, to a normative Islam, and we would say Ahlul Sunnah. And uh, Imam Salim uh, studied with um, with some teachers. One individual by name of uh, Sheikh uh, Shahid Bashir, Rahmatullah uh, he's a African American who left um, Detroit in the early '70s, and he went to the University of Khartoum in, in Sudan, and he ended up getting his degree in Arabic language and came back to uh, to Michigan. Uh, to Detroit, and he started to uh, to teach, and he had basically three uh, stellar students, and uh, Imam Salim was one of those uh, particular uh, students. So uh, he <clears throat> he was the first teacher that I learned Alif Bata from in. Uh, and, and all of those all of all of those those things and um i um i start off taking his class uh a couple of days a week 
and that didn't suffice. So what I decided to do was there was a uh, an opening at the uh, at the masjid, the masjid in Detroit. They were looking for someone to be a, a part time janitor, and uh, I was in uh, I was starting college. I was in college, I should say. And so what I did was I got the job as a janitor there part time, but it was my um, my my Nia wasn't really to like make any extra money. I want to be there because the imam was there every day. So it gave me some um, additional days to to ask him questions. Like four, like it gave me four extra days where I could be in his presence when no one else was around or in between appointments to ask him questions. And he kind of like took me underneath uh, his wing. Uh, so I became his his uh, his student or his his disciple. And, um, you know, so basically how I began to learn uh, grammar and to ask questions as well as morphology and then to be around to start reading some other books was um, it was in part the access I had was being the uh, the janitor, um, you know, uh, vacuuming the musalla rug, cleaning the uh, the bathrooms and taking out the trash, uh, mopping floors um, in the kitchen area, all of those uh, all those things. So, um, alhamdulillah. Um, what would you say, I guess, because you talked about, um, you know, the four semesters where you kind of studied Islam from like a I guess, academic perspective. Um, what would you say are kind of the benefits or um, pros of going the traditional route? Yeah, well, sometimes in order to know how nice something is, you it's, it's good to juxtapose it or compare it to something that is not good. So <laughs> part of the issue is, is that learning Islam in secular institutions and, and, and including studying under, underneath Muslims in these secular institutions, <clears throat> there's two problems. One is that the spiritual aspect is stripped from it in the class because it's treated like a purely secular endeavor. And then there's people taking the classes in there who aren't uh, believers in Islam. As a matter of fact, um, it was bizarre because after 9-11, there were people in law enforcement that were coming there to take classes about Islam that were moving on to work like in the FBI uh, so they could learn how to basically how to spy on Muslims, right? So uh, that was, that was, uh, one part, but the other part was is that some uh, one particular uh, professor that I had, um, <clears throat> he was very non-traditional and actually anti-tradition. Uh, um, for instance, <clears throat> I had a professor who tried to justify that it was okay after Isha prayer to drink wine at home with his wife. And he said that, you know, the occasions of the Ayatul Quran were relating to 
um, you know, certain um, uh, fitten and people uh, drinking and getting into fights and or, you know, praying intoxicated. And so he said, so uh, what's the problem if I drink a glass of wine or two in the evening and I've already done my Isha prayer and by the time I wake up, it's out of my system and, you know, I'm not I'm not hurting anyone and I'm not drunk driving. I'm not getting into any fights. And, you know, and he said that he thinks that, you know, Muslims need to be more progressive and, you know, you know, update, you know, have a modern Islam instead of a medieval Islam. Uh, so obviously I got into arguments uh, in class. I remember even one lady who was a, uh, a police officer who was taking the class uh, who was being recruited by the FBI, an African-American woman, I remember her even saying, um, she's like, everyone knows Muslims can't drink. And this was like a, and this was a, a this was a Christian woman saying that. So um, I didn't, I, I had, I, I had no aspirations to, to continue to like study secularly to get like a, a degree to teach in a secular institution. So uh, I basically had uh, enough of, of, of that, uh, not that foolishness, even though I got, you know, A's in, in all the classes that I took in, you know, uh, college, you know, university level relating to uh, Islamic history and Islamic studies and things like that. But it just didn't, it, 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 it didn't do anything for me. And alhamdulillah, I'm, I'm glad I had that. Uh, I'm glad I had that feeling. And then also Imam Warfdi Muhammad, rahmatullahi he also uh, encouraged us or told us as youth, he said, uh, I remember vividly in a gathering, he says that going into these universities, studying Islam, uh, in particular from uh, disbelievers, he says, it, it, it may cause you to lose your iman. Mm -hmm. And there are people who've gone to the academy and literally lost their 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 faith uh, studying Islam in that way. And then, you know, he set up opportunities for young people who were part of his organization to go to uh, Malaysia for intensive studying abroad, and then also for Abu Nur uh, University in Damascus. Uh, so he was encouraging uh, people in my generation at the time, you know, our teens and early 20s to uh, study, uh, you know, with, with traditional uh, mashayikh and uh, not take the route of just limiting our Islamic studies to like a, uh, a secular university. Though in my area, uh, Dr. Sherman Abdul Hakim Jackson, Hafizullah Ta'ala, was teaching at the University of Michigan, but uh, he at, at that time he was one of the rare. Yeah. He was one of the rare like believing practicing Muslims who also like had studied in, in Egypt and had sat with Mashaikh who was like teaching at a secular institution. But most of these teachers they weren't they didn't have like real traditional background. I mean they knew Arabic and, and spoke Arabic and things like that, but. Um, you know, they, they weren't uh, traditional. Can you talk a little bit about the Mashaikh in West Africa? Um, what makes scholarship in that part of the world so unique? Well, 
one thing I can say is that in West Africa, and I'm speaking predominantly about Mali and uh, to a, a lesser extent, uh, Senegal, I mean, as far as like time, uh, I didn't, I've, I've, um, I have not spent um, uh, any, any other time in, in other West African countries, well, except for going to Ghana with my teacher, uh, mm -hmm. Sheikh Ali here. We went to, uh, to Ghana and uh, visited uh, his Sheikh in, in Accra. I had a chance to sit with him as well as with the, uh, the chief Imam of, of Ghana. Sheikh Uthman Sharabutu Hafizullah Taala, but the 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 Mashaikh in West Africa, um, there, there there's some things in these areas. Number one is that, uh, and not to not to be sectarian, but uh, there's two things I found to be different from people who spent time uh, in some other places in the Arab world. And one is that in these countries, um, the 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 alqaf uh, aren't controlled by the government, right? So the mashaykh there don't go to visit the dictator or go visit the presidential palace. As a matter of fact. In those countries, when, when someone's running for um, for office, um, or if they want to be in good graces of their followers, uh, the the shiuk don't go to visit the president. Actually, it's 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 the opposite of way around. It's by custom, the president will have to go to visit the 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 big shiuk, and when they come in. Uh, uh, they sit at the feet. Uh, they sit at the feet of uh, of the sheikh, right? They're on the floor. The sheikh is in his chair, and they will come and kiss the hand of the sheikh, right? It, it, it's not. It, it's it's so. It's very different than from uh, from from other uh, places and from friends of mine who have uh, been or studied in, in in some other places. I would say the the other thing is. Uh, in, in regards to that, is also um, for whatever reason, maybe uh, these particular areas were ignored, or it's because the the influence of the shiuk and the different turuk that are there, or the uh, we could say the the orders of tasawwuf, but the uh, Wahhabi or the quasi Salafi dawa never really penetrated in those areas right so uh the shiuch have a um a, a lot of influence but there's uh, the traditional style of of teaching but there's also the circles of of dhikr that are common uh that are uh, open it's not something that's done in uh in back rooms uh, it'll be at the the, the the grand masjid in the in in the in the center in the center of the of the city and there'll be a zawiyat in different areas and um and then also with that people you know they 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 teach and they follow uh, a, a, a madhab right so it's not this this thing about oh you just uh pick and choose whatever you want and 
you know, you, you, you treat fiqh like a, um, like a buffet or, you know, take a little bit here, take a little bit there, what you like, but you learn, uh, people there, uh, teach, uh, you know, a particular madhab. It just happens to be the Maliki madhab, but that's how it is. Um, that's how it is there. So, um, I would just say that's kind of what I've uh, what I've seen and what, I, what I've experienced in, in comparison to um, what others have experienced, or even what I've seen with my own eyes in going to some other places in the in, in the Arab world. Beautiful. Thank you for that description. Uh, let's let's talk about your books. Um, firstly, uh, the two centering Black narratives books. Um, why did you choose the topics? even just the name of the book, Centering Black Narratives, um, obviously kind of hints at, you know, those narratives often being pushed out of mainstream Muslim narratives. Can you just like talk about um, like the need that you saw that um, that you tried to fill with these books? Well, <clears throat> um, the first book we wrote, Centering Black Narrative, Black Muslim Nobles Among the Early Pious Muslims, which I co-wrote with, um, with um, my brother Ahmed Mubarak, actually, who um, attended Azhar. Uh, he was actually there uh, in, in uh, Azhar at the same time as uh, Ustad Obeyullah uh, Evans, Hafizullah uh, Ta'ala. We decided to write that book, but um, it wasn't an organized plan. Actually, it was a result of something that happened um, a few years ago before we wrote the book and there was <clears throat> uh, a South Asian um, uh, brother uh, who is a Mufti. I don't want to mention his name uh, or even what country he's in, but he made some comments online on Facebook that were uh, derogatory about black people where he went over the top and he kept doubling down and then um uh ahmed replied to him and then i replied to him as well on facebook and then also um usted abdullah ali uh usted abdullah ali who teaches at zaytuna college it also had responded and there was a back and forth going so what um, Ahmed and I decided, so you know what, um, instead of arguing with this guy, we're just going to start writing about uh, post about uh, the the black uh, Sahaba uh, besides Bilal, because what that what that other brother had wrote had really upset a lot of people. So what we started a Facebook page and. Uh, I think it's called uh, Muslim personalities who are black or black Muslim personalities, something like that. And we said that we were going to post a different Sahabi or Tabi every day. So as we started posting it, we had people who were sending us messages saying that they were loving the post and people were even reading uh, these uh, posts to their uh, to their children. So at night, so what we decided to do was about halfway through, he's like, you know what? So we should just go ahead and just write a book. 
and put these things in, in the book. And then Usted Abdullah, uh, we uh, reached out to him and he ended up writing the, the foreword or the, or the introduction to the book. But it started off with a um, responding to uh, this person who wears the dress of being a scholar who was saying some anti-Black things, which we then decided to take a different approach and started writing. Uh, about this topic on our own. And then um, we decided that we were going to write a book and uh, we reached out to uh, one of the brothers who I know uh, well in, in this area in, uh, in Michigan uh, with Launch Good. Launch Good actually was founded here in Michigan, still um, it's still based here in, in Detroit. And we uh, raised money for a uh, a launch good campaign and then we uh we printed the book uh centering black narrative so that's that's the story um i guess i guess i have a question because i'm um, just like coming from like an msa context or even a university context um i feel like every so often there's kind of like a wave of like um you know we need to talk about anti-blackness in the muslim community and it kind of comes like one event and then we don't talk about it for like a year. So um, with like creating a, a book like this or building a narrative like this, how do you make sure it's not just like a hot topic that disappears? Well, you know, all we can do is write and, you know, uh, continue to to teach when the opportunity gives uh, is presented. But um, I've never felt that it was my job to uh to have muslims who are arab or south asian stop being anti-black right uh, i think that's the job of leaders in the south asian arab american communities in particular who are muslims that uh, are willing to uh, respectfully uh check people in their community and to educate people and to continue to support um such endeavors of 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 african-american scholarship and i think it goes beyond just these these uh these books uh that we've written on centering the black narrative so um black uh american scholars uh should be seen as more valuable to the community than just being invited to talk about racism or the talk for the Black History Month or the ceremonial Malcolm X speech, uh, you know, or the you know Black History Month programs, or to be the fundraiser at the annual gala or for the masjid during Tarawih, like how uh, like how Imam Saraj has probably raised money for probably about probably about fifty percent of the masjid in America, right, in Islamic schools. Um, it's also more of uh, bringing in uh, expertise, uh, not uh, in the sacred sciences, but also outside the sacred sciences, and to um, and, and and to lift that up within the community, right? And uh, so, I, I, I I'm not saying it's not our our job as. Uh, African American duat and African American leaders to to not uh, educate 
and to help uh, be a part of these discussions. But uh, I don't think the primary burden should be on us. Um, I've said that uh, I've said that for a number of years now. It's not anything that I've said new or uh, with George Floyd or even before. Um, Mike Brown or, or Trayvon Martin. I've been saying this for a long time. Sorry, I hope I hope I didn't phrase that in a way that implied it was your job. Um, oh no 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 no! I'm just clarifying. <laughs> okay, and then uh, your uh, third book, towards sacred activism. Um, you know, the book gained immense traction. You've talked about it all over the country, if, if not the world. Um, wh why do you think the response to this book uh, was so strong and 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 why did it resonate with so many people? Well, towards sacred activism is something that I think many Muslims have been uh, yearning for mm -hmm. in the sense that we all know as Muslims just intrinsically that justice is an important part of our noble way of life. And uh, as American Muslims have been uh, more acculturated into the American society, there's been a number of issues that have uh, come to the fore uh, beyond uh, overseas issues. And uh, many uh, American Muslims uh, have borrowed or used uh, epistemologies and methodologies that uh, don't come from Islamic thought. And uh, some of those uh, analysis and some of those organizing methods uh, have, uh, have value to them, but many Muslims have found uh, a void. And even in some of these, uh, some inherent conflicts, uh, thus, I went about the endeavor of writing uh, towards sacred activism uh, after uh, conferring with 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 uh, with teachers and and some of my peers to at least try to write something that's kind of like a primer of giving somewhat of a of a of a framework based upon our usul about how we can um, uh, address activism especially what people call social justice activism uh, in the United States of America, as well as uh, I could say in Canada. But yeah, I've, I've taught this book. Um, actually, the book was launched. The first place that I taught it was at a weekend intensive through Seekers. And that was by the invitation of Sheikh uh, Faraz Rabbani, Hafidullah uh, Ta'ala. And I've, uh, I've gone over to the UK and taught it. I've, uh, um, presented at, at uh, Cambridge uh, Islamic uh, College, and uh, I've done trainings of it for uh, university students, Muslim students in, in uh, South, uh, South Africa and in, in Denmark. Uh, so it's, it's, alhamdulillah, it's, 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 it's I, I think it's been a benefit to, to, to some people. Um. Great book. Um, I, this is essentially what the book is, but if you had to summarize how in positions of leadership, um, whether that be at the MSA level, the imam level, the 
Healthcare Michigan level. Um, how do you strike that balance of not allowing uh, issues to be swept under the rug and giving in to those who say they don't exist um, or that they're not, you know, um, necessarily like Muslim enough issues? And then balancing that with the other side of, you know, ex, um, uh, supporting causes in a way that are kind of outside of the bounds of Islam. Well, what I tell people is that uh, as Muslims, and then we believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made us to be the vicegerents in the earth. And therefore, we've been given a, uh, a responsibility to uh, not only look after the affairs and help improve uh, any society that we live in, but we are charged, as Imam Wafdi Muhammad said, is that we are charged to restore our relationships back to their natural places, right? So when people take things outside of where they're supposed to be, that is when wrongdoing, uh, indecency, and oppression uh, comes about. So it's our job to, to be the foremost people to bring forth goodness in our societies and to reform whatever societies that we are in to make them better places than when we were born in, in them or where we or where we found them at. So this is how I explain uh, all these things. And this is how I've told people that uh, police accountability issues, uh, this is a, this uh, police accountability is a Muslim issue. Um, making sure that there's clean water in Flint, Michigan, or clean water in Detroit, or that people's water is not being shut off in Detroit during a global pandemic, that this is a Muslim issue. Uh, whether Muslims are being uh, affected or not, which Muslims are affected in these both in, in these issues. Um, so I, this is why I use as examples. Now, <clears throat> the other is that uh, thing that you mentioned is that what things go outside the bounds and this is why I say is that we're, we're supposed to have an ethos and a Quranic ethos is how we're supposed to operate. Because if we are uh, working as Muslims and if the job is about justice, then justice is one of God's names, right? So, and God is supposed to be our ultimate objective. So if our activism is for the sake of God, and for the pleasure of Almighty God, then it has to conform with that which is pleasing to Him. And anything, <clears throat> and anything that He has uh, made forbidden, uh, said to stay away from, or uh, that He has uh, cursed, uh, uh, sent latna upon, then those are matters in which we are not to advocate for uh, if our activism is truly for the sake of God and not for uh, people pleasing or for our own egos and our own uh, fame. Um, perfect segue. Um, I remember at that uh, intensive at Seekers, um, you talked about the importance of staying connected with the teacher to help keep you kind of accountable um, 
to that balance of seeking the truth and, and not just, you know, giving into the ego. Can you uh, expand on that? What does that uh, relationship and accountability between student and teacher look like? Well, the student teacher uh, example that we've been given in the Quran, which should be uh, a lesson to all of us. And it, I believe it is definitely no mistake that our prophet alayhi wasalam, recommended for us to, to read this uh, surah every Friday, Surah Al-Kaf, the 18th chapter of the Quran, that we have uh, and almost at the end of that surah, uh, I mean, the very end is talking about but before then, there's the story of Musa السلام, and his guide and his or his teacher. Uh, he's not mentioned by name in the Quran, but we know from the tafsir, this is Al-Khidr and we see the, the process of sitting with a teacher and being patient and going through the process of, of uh, obtaining uh, experiential knowledge uh, at the feet of teachers, right? That we have to be uh, humble, uh, to have patience, and to understand that um, everything uh, that we see on the surface may not be the reality, as the uh, hadith that we were told uh, about that Imam Tabarani uh, narrated that Suyuti uh, also mentioned uh, that for every thing, every created thing, with every outward thing, there's a deeper uh, reality to it. There's an there's a inward, uh, deeper reality. Or we can say for every physical thing, there is a, there is a, there's a metaphysics behind every physical thing. So that is the type of uh, upbringing and mentorship that we need, and we get that by being connected with teachers, by humbling ourselves and having a teacher and sitting at the at the feet of a teacher helps us with our egos. It helps us and 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 to be able to to be patient. And also, when we uh, need advice, when we're uh, travailing the path, right? That is our is our teachers that gives us advice. Um, Sometimes validation, but uh, you know, other times when we need advice and they may tell us something that maybe we don't particularly want to hear or tell us, we, you know, maybe you need to sit down for a little bit and take a break or rethink some things. Um, this is uh, very valuable, and I can't stress uh, enough um, the importance of having a guide or a teacher, and especially. <clears throat> especially from those who are who are under uh, 40 and and then especially for the shabab uh, for the, the the youth um and we know the saying of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wasallam that the, the the shabab or the youth is from the the tree of of, of janun is from the tree of of insanity right because uh, youth tend to be uh, impetuous and uh, maybe uh, will act in haste and come to hasty conclusions, uh, thinking they know everything. And this is part of the lesson from Soto Kaf, right? So uh, we, we have to have teachers to stay plugged in. And um, 
there's a saying of the um of the people of Tasawulf that it in it, it's 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 a statement of uh of a mubalagha in a sense or an exaggerated statement, but it says for the one who doesn't have a, a sheikh, that shaitan becomes their sheikh, right? Or there's a saying that if if one only looks to themselves uh, for advice or counsel, then they're seeking counsel from a fool, right? So uh, we we definitely need that. And I've seen I've seen uh, a number of mistakes that have been made in the activist world, and some of them from very prominent activist uh, sisters, uh, some brothers as well, and. Uh, I know some of them personally, I've talked to them, and almost all of them have one common denominator, that they haven't sat and studied traditionally with teachers, and they don't have a spiritual mentor, or a, a murabi, or a murshida, or a, a female uh, uh, a spiritual mentor, or a guide. That's the one thing I've seen uh, almost every single one of them have in common. Just switching gears just a little bit, um, you and Sheikh Abakrim Yahya have um, these Switwood dialogues, discussions um, every month. Um, can you talk a little bit about how those came to be? Yeah, so in the city of Detroit, um, you know, a couple of years ago, we started uh, a Futua, uh classes. We've had to scale them back because of COVID-19. Uh, there's still meetings in person now or um, brothers only, uh, no one um, under uh, the age of, of, um, of 14 can come. But um, we've had these, we, we only have these discussions now about twice a month, but before we were having the, uh, the gatherings, uh, then with discussion afterwards, and then uh, there's also, we were having um, uh, martial arts uh, training there uh, as well in the, in the Zawiya, is Dar Rahma on the, uh, on the west side of Detroit, close to Dearborn. And uh, what uh, we have been doing is reading from Kitab El Fatua, uh, El loosely translated as Islamic chivalry. Um, and, uh, the kitab is by uh, As-Sulami, Rahimullah Ta'ala. There's a number of books called Kitab al-Futuwa. Uh, we've been reading through a particular one by As-Sulami. Um, so we, we we read part of the book in, in Arabic, give the translation, and then have a discussion and uh, about the topic and then open it up for everyone that wants to share about what's going on. Uh, in their lives to share something. And uh, it's been somewhat of a safe space. You know, we operate off the principle of the of the hadith of the Prophet, the hadith, that uh, the gatherings are in a manner, they're a sacred trust. So what is said in the, in the majlis stays in the majlis. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's it's been some raw conversations where people talk about, you know, they're the only Muslim in the, their family and the struggles they're going through, or they're the only Muslim uh, in their family who's practicing, how they have Muslim family members who 
smoke weed and go to the casino. Um, the only one in the house praying uh, in, in, in Ramadan. Uh, issues of, of, of people coming in, uh, you know, talking about uh, their parents are getting divorced and they, you know, don't really know what to do. Um, so it's been a type of, uh, these types of gatherings are, are gatherings of healing and it teaches a, what, what we would say, it helps to recenter things as far as what we would know as sacred manhood. Uh, because in our society and in some of our cultures, it is taught that, uh, men, uh, can't be vulnerable and share their feelings with other men, or even if they're going through some pain to, to share it, or even to, to shed some tears in front of other men, you know, so, and there's, and there's nothing unmanly, you know, uh, uh, about that. Uh, I mean, the Sahaba used to do this, right? So uh, you can, we can be strong and, uh, you know, work out and uh, lift weights and we do our, do martial arts three days a week and, and also do khidma as far as going to elderly people's homes and shoveling their snow in the wintertime or these things. And also, you know, doing archery and going uh, deer hunting and, 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 and then uh, slaughtering the deer and skinning it and, and, and coming back and making some venison stew, all these so-called manly things that people think about, about men hunting and, learning how to fight and pumping iron, you know, but also to, you know, to sit back and say, you know, I don't know what to do, or, you know, I need your support or I need your help. And, um, you know, that's the, that's the balance that we need so that we can have, um, you know, chivalrous young men who are, uh, you know, coming and getting older so uh, they can be, productive members in society, productive members in the Muslim community, and actually uh, young Muslim men who are fit for our daughters, you know, and um, I have a 13-year-old daughter, and, you know, I, I have a stake in this matter because I look into our community, and I wonder, like, you know, where where are the, 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 the men, you know, that, that they're going to have, that have sacred manhood, you know, like I want my daughter to have a a a, a real man, like a, a man operating according to the to the uswa of our prophet, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Right. So we have to um, we have to cultivate this and do this. And I think uh, fatua is one of the 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 aspects of our tradition that. Uh, needs to be uh, revived of having the fitian and the and the uh, the akhua, the 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 brotherhood, um, uh, to, you know, to help bring that balance and 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 healthy manhood, sacred manhood, back into uh, the the Muslim communities, uh, especially uh, Muslim communities in in America, uh, Canada, and in the UK uh, in particular. Um. When you say bring it back into the community, I guess um, if you had to think about, you know, where it went or, or what happened, is it, um, you know, is it a result of just like culture? Um, what, what happened? Like, 
Well, I think it's a number of things. Like 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 everything in our dean, like uh our dean is a dean of transmission, right? So uh our dean just isn't a dean of Matun or books, right? But it is living, breathing human beings that transmit uh knowledge through embodiment, right? And people who have chains of narration or who have chains of transmission, who learn certain things and uh, and then were able to transmit it, admit it and pass it down. So people can't transmit that what was never transmitted to them. And it's a number of things. I mean, uh, in, in, in many Muslim communities, uh, we treat, uh, we treat uh, Islam almost like how Christians treat church. We don't live in walking distance or close by. Uh, we commute to the masjid. We maybe go one time a week, just like how Christians go to church. And uh, if the uh, father is working long hours, or if there's not a father in the house, then uh, how can proper manhood be transmitted? Right? I think that's 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 one thing. And then also, um, also to just to be frank, um, there uh, in the establishment of Islam in North America uh, since the '60s, uh, there hasn't only in only in recent years, only I would say in the last decade or so, maybe at least in the last decade. I mean, it's it's, it's been good in the last decade at least, but. Uh, and, and inshallah will improve, but it's, it's just been a hodgepodge of how we uh, teach Islam and how we uh, transmit Islam. And in many communities, um, there weren't qualified teachers. Uh, there weren't qualified uh, uh, imams in many Islamic centers um, or, or qualified uh, teachers to teach youth. You had... Uh, I know in a number of places uh, where a masajid were built and the board is controlled by nothing but a bunch of medical doctors and engineers, and then they'll take turns having a different khatib every Friday, and there's like no foundation of any like real um, traditional uh, uh, learned leadership, and then. Um, you know, uncles and aunties who try to do their best and volunteer their time, but uh, weren't properly trained and uh, sometimes even uh, miseducating youth or passing down cultural things sometimes are actually uh, are, are, are toxic. You know, so, um, you know, this is why I say that there has to be a revival. Uh, I'm not sure if it's never, I'm not sure if it's ever existed in the majority of uh, of the American Muslim community. Um, so it has to be brought back to life in, in, in a sense. Do you feel like, um, you know, the qualities of having the spiritual really aren't necessary, um, you know, in like the activism world? Like what what is that relationship? Well, one thing I could say is that if if people are unfamiliar with the word tasawwuf, and we can use the word tezgia, mm -hmm. but I think that that is fundamental yeah. uh, for being involved in the activism world, and not just for males, but 
for uh, females as well, because um, there can't be any true uh, sustained Islamic ethics in activism without the jihad against the ego and caprice. And in order to deal with that, there has to be uh, uh, a methodology of how that is uh, tackled and also teachers to teach us and to help us in that spiritual way wayfaring. And as, as the prophet said, alayhi sallatu salam, likulli da'in dua, for every disease, there is a cure. So, um, you know, just like if we have major diseases or, or ailments, uh, we shouldn't expect that we're going to self-medicate or, or just go to Google and get the job done. If we have some serious things going on, we have to go to a doctor. And likewise, uh, it is the same thing with, with, this, with the spiritual diseases, the diseases of the heart, and helping us to better uh, stay grounded and uh, travail the path so that when we're in activism, we don't get... Uh, we don't cons we don't get consumed by things such as um, such as arrogance, such as envy, such as uh, um, uh, self uh, aggrandizement or uh, e egoism mm -hmm. um, or uh, aria uh, showing off and ostentation. Uh, these are some particular uh, issues that. Uh, people face that can become spiritual and in fact ethical challenges in the activism world these four in particular uh, so this is these are things that have to be uh, dealt with and uh, I believe that uh, the way to deal with these things is the the, the science of of, of Tesawuf or uh, Tezkiah. Well, thank you and last question inshallah we can close with this um, can you talk about your, your newest book that's coming out, uh, Blackness in Islam? Um, what, what is the book about? Um, what was the research process that went into it? Um, I know it engages classical text, but if you can just talk a little bit more in depth about that. Um, yeah. So uh, the latest book, Blackness in Islam, <clears throat> is kind of picking up, is picking up from where centering Black narrative was at. Hmm. And there's been some um, advancement of that, but there's new material, or I should say new subject matter that wasn't in uh, Centering Black Narratives. <clears throat> and what that is, is uh, the issue of responding to some, prob some uh, problematic things that have been brought up by Orientalists, including Black Orientalists and Pan-Africanists, that are critiques or criticisms of Islam. That uh, Orientalists, many of them say that Islam is inherently anti-Black or makes Black people a second-class um, citizens or second-class Muslims in the Ummah. <clears throat> so there's uh, some hadith that are clarified, as well as critiques on uh, some a hadith and some um, uh, narrations uh, that have, um, or athar that have snuck into, or are in some of our books that are, are fabrications. 
and uh, I clarify uh, those fabrications um, that have that have crept in some of our books. And I've also dealt with some issues or some rulings that have been pointed to as well that are in Islamic books that um, that appear to be anti-black. They have come from some very prominent scholars actually in our in our tradition. And uh, so uh, this is part of the clarification pro uh, process on the one hand, uh, uh, showing the 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 status of black people uh, from the very earliest history uh, of of Muslims during the time of the Sahaba and the the Abyssinian and Nubian um, uh, influence, but <clears throat> uh, also you know going into some of these mashakal, uh, some of these problematic. Um, a hadith, some problematic sayings that have been attributed to great people such as Ali ibn Abi Talib, um, certain things that have been narrated or said by uh, some prolific uh, scholars such as uh, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, rahimullah ta'ala, such as Sheikh uh, Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, Qadislahu uh, Rukham, may Allah sanctify his spirit. Uh, so this is what the, um, this is, uh, the, the gist of the book. Beautiful, thank you. And if I might ask, um, you know, what does that clarification process like look like? How do you um, kind of open that door? I mean, these are these are major, major scholars. Um, how do you how do you write that? Well, first of all, <clears throat> when it comes to um, some uh, one particular hadith, it is to put it in its context. So, for instance, uh, the hadith about Ras uh, al-Zabib, uh, or the, 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 the raisin head hadith, right? Um, that's put into context and in going back to what uh, Ibn Hajr said and how uh, classical Islamic scholars interpreted that to be, uh, unlike uh, what Orientalists have said, where they read the text and don't understand the, 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 the sharh, or understand uh, the the the, um, the the similitudes of, of Arabs of old and how they use certain terms. Um, then the 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 hadith that and the other things that come across as being anti-black, uh, those were uh, critiqued by looking into books and highlighting what hadith scholars said about. Uh, these, for instance, uh, Ibn al-Jawzi uh, uh, and what he said about these hadith being fabricated. Ibn, Ibn al-Qayyim said that every single hadith that was narrated downgrading black people and Abyssinians, every single one is fabricated. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we go through those, including one of those, by the way, that's been used to and has been put in certain fiqh books to say that um, black, that... Uh, one particular type of black person, the Zanj, uh, that um, that black black people, excuse me, non-black people, especially women, uh, aren't uh, compatible to marry the Zanj. And and unfortunately, uh, we can go to some fiqh books where uh, this has been used to say that. Um, 
like an, an Arab or a non-black Arab is not compatible to marry someone who's black, for instance. Um, so that's 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 one such example. Then the other things in regards to some sayings or some statements that have been said that they have to be put in their uh, in their time and place about giving background information about what the societal trends or norms were at that time. And, you know, we, we treat these things with um, the level of deference and respect and that, you know, there were uh, great men in, in our tradition uh, who were scholarly and uh, they had high stations, but that doesn't mean that uh, they were uh, infallible, right? Like we don't say that just because we believe that someone was a great scholar, or even if we believe them to be a wali of Allah, uh, they're not a prophet. Like that's part of our uh, our aqidah. Laysa ma'asuman min al right? This is what we say, that this individual is, is not uh, protected from, uh, divinely protected from error. Right, like they're human beings and they could make a mistake and influence by their time periods and their societies and, you know, give uh, much good. And maybe, uh, maybe they got, maybe they got something wrong. Maybe 95% of what they wrote or said was great. And maybe uh, on, on a couple of issues, maybe uh, they made mistakes in which other scholars uh, reply to the mistakes that they made. So, uh, and that doesn't mean that we're disrespecting uh, uh, any of these great scholars by mentioning this or even mentioning uh, the replies uh, that were given. I mean, uh, Imam Shafi, uh, um, he loved Imam Malik. He studied at Imam Malik's feet and he ended up disagreeing with his own teacher, right? So uh, even these great people would disagree with their seniors. And uh, so we, we just bring some of these things uh, to, to, to light um, to hopefully put at ease um, Muslims who are black, especially students of knowledge who come across some of these things. Mm -hmm. And as well as, um, you know, for those who aren't black, that, you know, some of these things that were written and said that they have to be put in their uh, historical context and maybe some of these things they wrote in the past uh, don't apply or should not be uh, referred to today. Beautiful. Thank, thank you so much. And inshallah, um, we can all benefit from your book. Um, when, when does it come out? It will be out in February 2021, inshallah. Inshallah. Um, I really look forward to reading it. It's, it's really, really important work. Looking forward to it, inshallah. Alhamdulillah. Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, Jazakallah khair um, for your time and, and all the history and wisdom that you shared. No problem. Take care. Take care. All right. Assalamualaikum. <laughs> Yeah, man, so me.